Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. Our guest today is Zena Hitz. She is a tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, and a former visiting fellow of the James Madison program. She joins us today to discuss her excellent new book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Zena Hitz, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thanks so much, Nino. It's great to be here. Great to be, quote unquote, back at the Madison program. <laughs> That's that's right. Uh, we're we're going to try to cover some ground today. Probably more ground than is prudent for us to attempt to cover. We're going to uh, we're going for it. We're going to discuss your book, Lost in Thought, uh, the impact coronavirus has had and will continue to have on our colleges and universities. How to read a great book, uh, and more. Your book begins midway through the journey of your life in the woods of eastern Ontario. What were you doing there? How did you get there and where did you go from there? So the woods of Eastern Ontario are um, a very small town called Combermere, uh, about two hours west of Ottawa. And that's the home of a community, a Catholic religious community called Madonna House, uh, where I lived for three years um, and where I discerned a vocation uh, before discerning out. Um, so I spent three years living and working in this place where the, um, as I explained in my book, uh, virtually every human good was made available to me as it's a, it's a beautiful community. There's prayer, there's liturgy, there's fulfilling work, there's service to others, uh, and opportunities for creativity and craft and all kinds of wholesome things, music, singing, um, but there was a good reader's library, but beyond that, no way that I could use my uh, intellectual skills, which since it was the middle of my life, uh, I had gone there as a, um, having left a career as a philosophy professor. So I had a, prior to that, I had been uh, first a sort of amateur intellectual as a young person, then uh, a developed amateur, having gone to St. John's as an undergraduate, where I teach now. And then I began training as an elite academic, from which I learned a lot um, and gained a lot, but which also left me feeling dissatisfied and disconnected from um, what felt like worthy goals. I, was, I wasn't sure anymore what I was doing and why. So my time away from the profession in the woods helped me to think more, not just about why intellectual life mattered to me, um, but why it mattered to ordinary people like the members of my community, um, why it mattered uh, to the ordinary people I'd known on the outside, uh, and to think about how it might be recast as a form of loving service, the way the work that I was doing there was meant to do. So uh, I, I at least uh, threaded the needle for myself, and when I discerned leaving, I also thought, Going back to my college to teach, which is very much not a research academic job, very much a non-elite academic job, uh, very much the job of a full-time teacher, <laughs> let's put it that way, right. more than full-time, double-time, uh, <laughs> and uh, the, 
through that, I could nurture in people who might or may not become academics the kinds of habits of mind and habits of the heart that I had learned myself as a young person. So that was that's the story in a, in a brief outline. It's a great story, and I encourage listeners to get the book to read that story if for no other reason, although there are, of course, many other reasons that we will cover. Well, let's talk briefly about St. John's College. For listeners who are not familiar with the institution, St. John's prides itself um, on the education through what we might call a great books curriculum, uh, as they call it great books with a capital G, capital B. What makes these books great? Uh, that's a, a great question. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm a bit, I differ a bit from many other proponents of the great books past and present in that I think it's really an educational quality that makes the great books great. So they are, of course, works of brilliance. They're works of beauty often, although not always. Um, and the important thing is that they provide a kind of education on their own. That is, they invite the reader in, any reader, any level, from the very beginner to someone like me who's been studying for 20 plus years. And they, they have something to teach any student at any level. Uh, and that permits a kind of collaboration in learning so that I can, for instance, even with a book I've read for many, many years, like Plato's Republic, um, I can enter into a conversation with my students about it and learn something, mm. see something that I haven't seen before. And I think it's that type of experience which is really fundamental to what makes a great book great. Now we have, by great good luck, or what, however else you want to explain it, you know, we have this, uh, this can these canons that exist in various versions, you know, the Western canon, as it's called, and related canons, um, you know, the Islamic canon, the Jewish canon, the Christian canon, which is not all Western. Um, and we see that um, it's this type of tradition is has been a way that communities have educated themselves for a long, long time. Uh, and it's, I think, really uh, just, uh, it's been an enormously rich experience for me, both to have learned in a program like that and to be teaching in one now. Sure. Uh, well, let's turn to a, another enormously rich experience, which is your book. Uh, and the title, <laughs> of the, the title of the book, as I mentioned, is Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. So let's begin. What do you mean by an intellectual life? And why do we have to get lost in order to cultivate one? Okay, good. So I think uh, you noticed something which not everyone notices, which is that one is it is necessary to be lost. Right. That is, an intellectual life is not is is almost by definition not something immediately available. Mm. Um, it's not like an eating life uh, <laughs> or a sex life. Uh, these other things that we use the the word life with. Um, it's it's something that takes a certain amount of work to get to. Now mm. there are immediate. Uh, experiences which lead into or can even constitute intellectual life. So for instance, for me, it's always been like looking at natural things, the sky, the trees, whatever's going on around me. Um, now that has a, that's a contemplative activity. It's, it's, uh, it can be a part of um, thinking and reflecting. 
It can be an occasion for thinking and reflecting. So things like that, there's plenty of things which are, are more or less immediately available to us that lead us into intellectual life. But my thought is that intellectual life is, is when you're pursuing the love of learning for its own sake, or when you're learning out of love would be a simpler way of putting it. Hmm. Um, and uh, I think this is very broadly available, this type of intellectual life. It's not something that belongs exclusively or even primarily to professional academics. Um, and it can be lived out in any number of ways, uh, botanists or bird watchers, um, readers, bookworms, these are all very common forms, uh, star watchers, stargazers, uh, history buffs, um, these are the really common ordinary forms of it. Um, but I think many of us engage in um, forms of learning and reflection and we're doing it for its own sake. We're not doing it in order to um, solve a practical problem or make more money or gain in the status ladder or all of the other things which I think can function as distractions. Sure. Um, well, now I want to turn to the subtitle. In the subtitle, the hidden pleasures of an intellectual life evokes the image of someone nestled in an armchair by the fire, <laughs> reading a novel with a hot cup of tea while the snow falls gently outside the window. Uh, but that's not quite the image of an intellectual life you offer. Uh, you write, for example, and I quote you here, to exercise the love of learning in all of its splendor, we must allow it to discipline and put in order our other motivations by interior war or interior peacemaking. Intellectual life turns out to be a form of asceticism, a cultivation of ourselves that involves uprooting and drying up parts of ourselves as much as it requires sunlight, soil, and seed. Tell us about that. Well, I think it's clearest to begin, as I do in the book, with cases where this asceticism is not so much chosen as forced. Yeah. So um, my first example, which is in a way one of my favorite examples, uh, is from a French film from 2010 called The Hedgehog. And there's this woman, uh, middle-aged concierge, working class woman of a, of a high class Parisian apartment building. And she is denied by virtue of her, her gender, her station in life, her type of work, certain uh, accidents. Um, she's limited from any kind of prestige or wealth of the kind that say people like you or I have. Um, on the other hand, she um, has behind her kitchen this room where she reads. So she does have a cozy chair with a cat and a, maybe not a fireplace, um, but she's surrounded by books. And it's the movie suggests that, that that place is where she is really most fully alive and most fully herself, where she finds a kind of dignity that's, that's denied her by her circumstances. And... Uh, uh, where she also finds the basis for real friendships with some members of the building. Those members are fleeing something. Uh, so that's maybe an intermediate uh, kind of case where they, they don't like bourgeois French life. Uh, they find it boring. They find it superficial. They find it uh, deadening to their souls in certain ways. So talking to Renee brings that out in them. Now, then there's a case of, say, someone like me, let's use me as an example, since I'm, <laughs> I don't have to make any accusations <laughs> against myself. Um, 
for me, uh, when I decided to say go to the monastery or come back to St. John's, I had to make war on myself. That is, I loved being, uh, as much as I was, uh, a research academic and a lead academic. I loved traveling. I loved prestige. Um, I loved hobnobbing with well-known academics. Um, and even though I was really hungering for something different, um, it was it was the most difficult thing I ever did. Would was to walk away from um, a form of success that was, by all outward signs, working well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that, I suppose, is uh, the example. So I, I think most of us are in this situation. That is, we're, and even maybe more now than then, in that. We're surrounded by distractions. You know, our attention is being bought and sold by the um, media companies. Um, we ha- often have work that is, for us middle class people, might be prestigious, might even be well paid, but might be meaningless. Uh, so we have all kinds of ways that we're being pulled out of ourselves. And we need to uh, respect our, our sort of gnawing discontent and really make an effort whatever, to make some sacrifices, whatever seem appropriate, given our station in life, uh, our walk of life, uh, to try to recover in a more authentic way of, of thinking and reflecting and being human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about this. You mentioned some, um, these examples of people like Antonio Gramsci, who uh, have this asceticism sort of imposed upon them, and it's so good for their intellectual life. Uh, my first thought in reading these passages was of Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, and his famous line, bless you, prison, bless you for being in my life. And I started thinking, shouldn't we be in a similar circumstance right now imposed upon us by this virus? You would think that it has imposed these difficulties, drawn us towards this ascetic life, and yet it almost feels like it's the opposite. Like we have so much leisure, so much time to do nothing, that it's easier to just do nothing. I, I know what you mean, and, and it was a very awkward situation for me, uh, having just written this book, you know, and having it come out in the midst of quarantine, and then finding myself totally unable to concentrate <laughs> and to think, you know, I think, what did I just write? You know, what, what was the point of that? I think, honestly, part of, so I think there are two, this is my, I have two kinds of explanations for what's going on and why it's actually particularly difficult. One is that it, it can take a while to, and I th- I'm sure this was true for the prisoners, even if we don't always hear their account of it. It takes a while to realize that this is your life. Like it's not going to change. Hmm. Um, and you need to surrender to your circumstances before you can really make use of them. And I think that's been very hard given the kind of uncertainty we've been in, you know, will the, you know, Will our college meet in person? Will we not be in person? Will we be this? Will we be that? Will we be offline? Will we be online? Will you know? Will the kids be home? Will they not be home? Uh, and not to speak of the the chaotic political situation, which I think also makes us more anxious. So it's very hard to concentrate under those circumstances. But the other thing I think is that um, the other reason we have to fight is that, of course, um, our our solitude is being invaded by uh, work and by social media and by all yeah. the things which, so it, it's really not a pure solitude sure. um, when you have to work from it and, uh, and you actually lose, 
I mean, one of the very basic human things, right, is compartments of where certain tasks take place. Mm, you know? sure. So I'm right now talking to you at my dining room table. You know, normally I might be in my office or something like that. But I, I, you know, so my, you know, your office, your dining room, your bedroom, your study, all of these places get mashed together. And that is harmful to uh, a, an ordered life where you, um, you know, have a certain place for each kind of activity and that allows you to focus. Right. Right. Um, you pinpoint a virtue that's required uh, to pursue this intellectual life. And that's the virtue of seriousness, as you call it. Tell us about this virtue. How do you recognize it? What does it look like in practice? Uh, how do you cultivate it? So uh, I came across the virtue of seriousness a bit late in the project, and it sort of surprised me. Hmm. Um, and uh, then I started to think it was more important So I, than I had thought earlier on. I think that um, a virtue of seriousness is basically a desire and a determination and a habit of trying to get to the bottom of things. So it's it's the reason why in the book, it, I, I bring it up especially, It's it comes up, first of all, in Augustine as a, as a sort of translation or interpretation of the opposite of curiositas or what I call love of spectacles. And, what he, or, and so the contrast is um, studiousness, studiositas in the tradition. Um, I think that sounds kind of dull. <laughs> the virtue of studiousness doesn't, it sounds like something I don't exactly want to endorse. So I thought yeah. the virtue of seriousness might be a little, it captures something from the original flavor and it might be something we can recognize. But I was thinking about Dorothy, someone like Dorothy Day who, re, who reads mm. books, who's a lifelong reader. And some of the books she reads are excellent, like Dostoevsky, they're books we would call great. And other of the books like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, these are quite propagandistic. I mean, they're 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 melodramatic. They um, they really push a political point, and so I I wanted to try to understand why she ended up being serious uh, and really getting something growing from these books, uh, despite the fact that they were not necessarily that great. Um, yeah. So and I I I the virtue of seriousness I think has to be in there to for, as part of the explanation like she she just took this she took everything that she read very seriously and she tried to live it um and that's really the very opposite of our contemporary tendency which is to not take anything seriously you know everything's a bit of a game everything's a bit of a spectacle right. you know we, we can hold this opinion, we can hold that opinion, we can watch this video, we can watch that video, we can do this, but nothing ever really penetrates to our lives. We, mm -hmm. don't, we don't really, um, we, we distract ourselves from our own growth in a way that I think would not have been so easy in previous, previous eras. So that, that's my sense about what the virtue of seriousness is. It's, it's a bit mysterious to me, I'm still thinking about it, but that's, sure. that's a, at least a, a taste of it. Sure, and, and do you have a sense, um, I'm not even sure how to put the question, is it innate in some people? Do you need to practice it? You just need to sit down and force yourself to read and thereby you will develop this virtue. How do you think about this? If you, if we have a listener that says, yeah. oh boy, I'd really like to develop this virtue of seriousness. How do I do that? Well, that's a really good question and not something I've really thought about enough. I think if anyone's saying, I really want to cultivate this virtue of seriousness, <laughs> And they're already seen. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. I have seen, so this is based on my experience at St. John's. But St. John's is a place where we, where we do cultivate this virtue. We cultivate it mainly by example and by sort of infectiousness. 
So uh, I think um, a lot of our students, our students are in many ways unusual and in many ways very ordinary college students. And I think almost all of them get infected with that seriousness um, because they, they see it practiced. They see how rich an experience can give you of learning um, or of living. And, and so they, they start to take it on. So somehow being in an environment where it's fostered, which I think a good college could do, or a, for that matter, a good reading group, a good book club could do, um, any kind of community you can find that might help you with it um, or help a young person who you're trying to help with it. Uh, I think that it, it, that helps it to overcome the resistance that we have to it or the fear that we have um, or the unfamiliarity of, of being that way. Um, so I, I think it goes from person to person, in other words. Um, I, I, and a certain kind of book could probably provoke it. Um, you know, Plato's got a long history. A lot of the philosophical classics have a long history of doing that. So I, I, I don't quite know where, where there, I don't think there's anything general to say about where it comes through everybody. I think some people get sparked by a book, some people get sparked by a person. Sure. Um, and I do think it's probably inbuilt in most of, most of us. I don't think anyone is really intrinsically not serious, or maybe I just don't want to think that. But. <laughs> well, um, uh, let's, let's talk about that. And let's talk about that um, as it relates to college students today. You write that, and I'm quoting you, education begins from the assumption that students are capable of taking responsibility for their own learning and that they are naturally motivated even from within to pursue fundamental questions. That's right. End quote. I'm going to gently push back on this. Um, and this is anecdotal, so do with it what you please. But one professor that I've spoken with expressed his frustration teaching today. He said that his students aren't really all that engaged anymore, that they don't seem interested in uh, wrestling with the great books and the questions they present. So I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit, since I know you're just about to start classes. Um, and St. John's is a bit of an outlier here, but you have experience elsewhere. What's your experience with students? Are they engaged? Are they eager to wrestle with these great books? Oh, see, I, I, I think they absolutely are. Um, so I, I do think, uh, so I, I, I want to stand by what I said, that is, they need to be taken seriously. And it was always true. It was true for me as when I went to college as a 17 year old. That's a bit of an act of faith. That is, I was not a particularly serious person. The way I was, the way I was not serious is a bit different from the way the students aren't serious now. I mean, I never did any work, for instance, but I thought deep about deep questions, you know, whereas now today students all do their work, but they're not, they're more averse to big questions or less experienced with them. But still, I was not really very serious. And my students, uh, sorry, my teachers really like look at me like they expected me to come up with something. And that has an effect on you. It has an effect on my students too. Um, and I, I suspect honestly what's happening is a couple of things. I and mean, this is really speculation. I'm actually not, uh, I mean, I, I draw on my own experience in my book. I, I've never studied the empirical work of which is massive on education. So I often get caught in stuff that people argue with. But I, here's my impression for sure. what it's worth. Um, the quality of primary and secondary education has gone to absolute uh, garbage. 
Um, and it's exactly this kind of question. That is, we do not treat our students with respect. We do not treat them as agents. We do not treat them as thinkers. We do not treat them as discoverers. We teach them, we treat them as passive recipients of information that they can then spit out for their common core tests or whatever kind of test they have. So I think you're getting a freshman at college who have been shaped more or less by the system, absent some luck, like being homeschooled or sent to a, you know, a good private school or whatever it is. Um, but really, or, or having really good parents that help you navigate this kind of stuff. Um, but the, they've never been taken seriously. They've never been treated with respect. Um, and so college teachers have to be more um, uh, forthcoming, more aggressive about making it clear that what they're doing in their classes is something different. And that here, we think that you, student, you can be a thinker. You can engage. And that's not the way that a lot of people think when I say stuff like that. I'm not saying, tell me your opinion. I'm saying, you conduct an inquiry. You know, you get to the bottom of something. Um, and if someone doesn't invite you to do that, you know, you're just not going to know that you can do it. Um, and I think what's the other side of the story is that our colleges and universities have made that kind of thing extremely difficult because like the... Um, like the primary and secondary education, they are driven by metrics. They are working on a mass scale. Mm -hmm. There is actually, it's, it can be very difficult to find any, to have any personal contact with a student. And you need that personal uh, attention to build the confidence that you actually have something to say and can conduct an inquiry and can think about something. Uh, but it's, you know, it, it's also, it's very, it's the achievement focus, you know, it's like, what do I got to do to get the grade? Yeah. You know, an inquiry is not about getting a grade. Right. Uh, so you, you, we, you know, I think all of us who are involved in education have to be thinking really hard about ways to um, undo some of the damage that's being done. And that's been done now for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's that we can recover this um, our young people as adults, as, as, as free beings. Um, but it's, it's not easy given the institutions. You paint a dire picture of our institutions of higher learning in the last couple of uh, chapters. And you have this great phrase for them, our opinionized universities. And you write, quote, much of what counts as education in the contemporary scene is the cultivation of correct opinions. Uh, this is done, you point out, by both those on the left and the right. On the left, progressive activists encourage an education that, quote, seeks primarily social and political results rather than the cultivation of free, thoughtful human beings. But on the right, the same game is played through the promotion of correct opinions about free markets or economic liberty, again with an eye to broad political results. And it's not even just these two you make clear. We also have liberal arts schools, which promote the seemingly salutary end of viewpoint diversity. Yet you write, quote, even this school celebrates the same false god as the others, opinionating the holding of a viewpoint. And you continue, thus the promotion of viewpoint diversity is nearly as superficial and dehumanizing as the forms of indoctrination it means to replace, end quote. Say say more about that. So I uh, I suppose I wanted it's it's a bit of a development of what I was just saying a minute ago. Yeah. That is, um, 
there's something that's conducting an inquiry where you go um, past whatever the contemporary debate is and you get into something more fundamental. I think anyone with a certain amount of intellectual experience recognizes something like this. So we tell ourselves often, we sometimes we even tell ourselves this at St. John's, even though I think it's not true, that um, liberal arts education can help you to have conversations about very difficult, like hot button topics of the day. I, that's not my experience. So um, I think it's very difficult to have a conversation with someone you disagree with about a hot button topic of the day. Sometimes because these topics are built into people's lives and experiences in ways that makes it impossible for them to talk about. Hmm. Um, so, uh, and I, this happens in our classes sometimes too, right? You, you know, you're, uh, you're reading, a, say a work of literature about a, an incident of rape or an incident of abuse, if you've got someone in the room who's undergone that, they're not gonna be able to talk about it as a matter of opinion. But what they can do, and I've seen it happen, and I know it can happen uh, again and again, is if you get the inquiry past superficial, you know, past the I'm pro this, I'm against that, you know, past the, um, you know, the um, liberal, uh, the classic progressive kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, gatekeeping, like we can't talk about this and pass the conservative chain pulling, you know, it's like, oh, well, suppose I were to say this, you know, <laughs> uh, and if you get past that and you, and everyone is in space where they're less comfortable. And, and those to me seem to me the places where real education takes place. So, uh, and again, it's um, something I've, there's a really nice review of my book that I recommend in Commonweal by uh, Charlie McNamara, who teaches at Columbia, in the court Columbia, and I think he brings out that the scale of education makes that difficult. So it's, you know, if, if you're in a large scale, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to get a classroom of even as small as 50 or 60 students yeah. to engage in an inquiry with you. Right. Um, you can have a debate, you can have a poll, you can have a um, who thinks what, but to really work together on something, that's very difficult to do. So the scale is a problem. Do we need more professors? or fewer students going to college? <laughs> I guess that's a funny thing. Just, I've never been asked that question. I guess I'd say more professors. Uh, <laughs> well, what do I, I, I don't know. So I think we need smaller classes. Sure. So maybe what, that could be done in a variety of ways. You could have university be more focused. That is, if we separated out the job training, vocational training, from liberal arts, which I think is cliche. Everyone thinks we should do that. I mean, everyone right thinking thinks we should do that. Um, that takes some pressure off of, that means you're, that you have more students who are more committed to what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you don't have people taking liberal arts requirements with a, with a view to something that's really unrelated, um, which on a large scale doesn't work that well. Okay, so that, that might be one way of restricting students, but then you all, yeah, you need smaller classes. You need personal education. Um, learning is not the kind of thing that can be done on mass. Uh, we know that for the piano or for karate yeah. or for sports, we know that you need to be part of a small group with a coach or a team, um, teacher or a mentor. But for some reason, we think that when we get to college, you can be packed into a room with 200 people and it's not going to make a difference. <laughs> I just think that's crazy. So yeah, we need smaller, smaller formats. 
unfortunately, we might be heading the opposite direction uh, with the coronavirus. It's, it's really hurt our colleges and universities, uh, and it seems to be particularly harmful to smaller liberal arts schools. Um, they're needing to justify their existence, right? The prevailing wisdom is, no, 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 you go to college to learn something concrete that will pay you well. These small liberal arts schools aren't getting that done. Therefore, let them go under will be better for it. So again, these schools are having to justify their existence. You offer a warning. You say, quote, to justify intellectual activity in terms of its economic and uh, political benefits, as do contemporary defenders of the humanities in liberal education, might seem banal or beside the point. But such defenses are worse than that. They are false and destructively so. What makes these defenses false? even destructive? Well, so uh, one thing I need to say, something I've said in uh, <laughs> responding to reviewers, I'm being a bit rhetorical. Okay, so it's not that somehow liberal arts can't help you um, make more money or, or be entrepreneurial. Sure. Or, uh, so it, it can, it, it can and it does. Um, but what's false and destructive about it is that um, the, the real value of liberal arts education is not in that. The real value is in what it does for us as people. Sure. So one of the things that got me originally writing about these kinds of things was I was reading all these defenses of the humanities. This is like 2015 when the crisis of the humanities was a big topic. And uh, I thought to myself, no one, none of us actually got into this business for that. None of us got into this to train young people to make more money or to build their critical thinking skills or for that matter, to make them better. I mean, maybe to make them better citizens. I think that might be one that's a little, held a little bit more sincerely. Um, but I thought it was, frankly, uh, patronizing to offer to young people or to parents defenses that you don't really believe yourself. Yeah. Um, and that also ends up undermining your own practice because the, the destruction that is wrought is that then these people get in your classroom and you've got to show them what the connection is. <laughs> so, so then you get this kind of like, uh, you know, philosophy of Silicon Valley or whatever it is, you know, you're trying to, to bridge the gap in order to reach these students that you've already told um, that what you're doing matters for reasons that's different from it. So you, you're setting up all kinds of barriers between yourself and the students. I think you just need to invite them honestly and openly to the practice that you practice, the practice that you do for the reasons that you do it. Uh, that's egalitarian, that's humane, uh, and I think in the end it's gonna be more productive. Do you, do you think that that will draw more students to the humanities, more students to the liberal arts education if the instructors are blunt about what it is, saying, look, it may, it may end up that you make more money, it may end up that you get hired by a better company, but that's not why we're doing this. We're doing this for learning for its own sake. Will that bring fewer students, but they're more passionate, or will it bring more students to it? I think, frankly, it would bring more students if we said that with confidence, because part of what's going on is a lack of confidence mm -hmm. in the people that teach liberal arts. And that's very transparent. We might pretend that it isn't, but it, it is. Yeah. So what we're, if we say apologetically, oh, well, it's not going to help you really, but, you know, or maybe there's some critical thinking skills you can build along the way, then if we're on the defensive, then, uh, then no one believes us and no one wants to come. Whereas if someone looks you in the eye and says, you know what, like I do this amazing work. Uh, it might make you money, it might not, but let me tell you, you're not gonna be sorry. 
I think young people will be interested. Hmm. I think honestly, from what I understand, this is very anecdotal. The young people are all really interested in liberal arts. They love it. Um, it's parents who are often the most hostile to liberal arts majors. So it's, uh, there's often resistance from parents yeah. um, as to whether this will be the kind of thing that can get them lucrative work or can help them survive in an economy that doesn't look that, uh, sure. that promising. These are tenuous times in the nation right now. I think that understates it. And you write powerfully about the ways in which an intellectual life encourages us to enter into communion with our fellow man, regardless of gender, age, race, class, political affiliation, what have you. And you quote W.E.B. Du Bois, and it's worth reading in its entirety, I think. And Du Bois says, quote, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. Across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas, where smiling men and welcoming women glide in gilded halls. From out of the caves of evening that swing between the strong-limbed earth and the tracery of stars, I summon Aristotle and Aurelius in what soul I will, and they come all graciously with no scorn nor condescension. So wed with truth, I dwell above the veil." End quote. I'd welcome your reflections just on his quote more generally, but also on this. It seems that some of the most vicious attacks on Shakespeare and Aristotle and Aurelius and the authors of this Western canon are practitioners of identity politics who disagree so strenuously with the sentiment of Du Bois. What are they missing? Well, I think what they're missing, and this is something I, I've learned about, um, was pointed to by a friend of mine uh, named Anika Prather, who, who runs a, she start, founded a, class, a classical school in a black community outside of DC, hmm. where she mixes uh, classics of Western canon with um, black American classics. Uh, and one of the things that she pointed out, and, and since then I've, there's, there's actually tons of writing about out there that you never find unless you're looking for it. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, the classics educated um, the black American people for more than a hundred years. So if you look, it's not just Du Bois, it's Frederick Douglass, um, who uh, read classical oratory, you know, as yeah. a, a, when he was just learning to read. Right. Um, it's uh, someone like Baldwin, who has this wonderful essay on um, how he learned to love Shakespeare and mm. what it meant for him to realize that these books were presenting something human, something which he had access to, and that as a free adult, he could then recast in his own time and place and circumstances. Um, and it's even in radicals like Malcolm X or Huey Newton, uh, they read the great books. <laughs> so uh, there's, I think what they're missing is a sense of um, how liberation happens. And uh, it happens through books. It happens through books, which are great books. Hmm. Um, and the, the race or the gender of the author cannot stop that. Yeah. Okay, so, so there's a kind of diminishing view of, of what a reader is and what a reader is capable of. Hmm. And uh, it's, I don't understand all the theory behind it, which I gather there must be some. But I think to some extent, it must just be ignorance of how this type of education has actually taken place among working class people, among slaves and ex-slaves, among all kinds of people who are not privileged in 
any respect Um, uh, or who face massive obstacles and these stories are out there and once you get to know them the 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 identity politics critique of great books just looks weaker and weaker Um, so that yeah I don't don't know where they're coming from but it's it's definitely not someplace that um, is alive to the possibilities uh, of a free reader and an sure. education. Um, is the development of an intellectual life especially important to citizens of a democratic republic like our own? You know, this is interesting. I used to not like that argument because I thought it was instrumentalizing, <laughs> uh, you know, which kind of can be, right? It's yeah, like, oh no, no it's, like, yeah, why like... are we reading Plato to become good citizens? And you're like, <laughs> well, there's more to life than being a citizen. Like, right. I want to be a, a full human being, you know, and what if I'm not a citizen? What if I'm a slave, you know, okay. yeah. or a prisoner or what have you? So I, I think I do resist that as the fundamental explanation. Sure. Um, however, um, the more I've thought about uh, how inegalitarian our, our, our uh, societies become, um, how, um, how much contemporary education patronizes and belittles students um, and makes sort of sets them up to be, I think, sort of, uh, to use a kind of cliche, like obedient cogs in a machine, mm-hmm. you know, the more I think, you know what, uh, this whole argument was right. That is, we need this type of education mm-hmm. so that we have been looked in the eye by a teacher who says, your thinking matters. You can conduct an inquiry so you can evaluate. You don't, you're not an expert, but you can figure out some clues as to which expert is pulling something over your eyes and which expert is being trustworthy. And that I think is necessary. If we want to, if we want to live in the type of political community that um, that's based on liberal liberty and equality, which I think frankly is across the political spectrum. If you think about it Mm -hmm. uh, in some way, (laughs) if we want that, then we need to to be rethinking our, the way we're doing education. Sure. Uh, So as we draw to a close here, let's talk about how we actually do that. I'm sure we have some listeners. They've never picked up Plato or Aristotle before. (laughs) Uh, they've never heard of these great books. It sounds like some secret cult. Uh, <laughs> where do you begin? What's the first step? Well, I think uh, for some people, uh, they can just pick up one of these books. So, you know, the Greek's a great place to start. The, uh, or uh, for that matter, reading the, the Hebrew Bible very slowly. It's even older than the Greeks. Hmm. Uh, and it's uh, very interesting um, and not always read as carefully as it might be. Um, you know, pick up these books and, and read and think. Now it's better to do that with others. So perhaps you have a friend or a couple of friends who might be willing to read with you and talk about what you're reading. And mind you, what you're interested in is not just historical background or facts or, you know, who did what when, but trying to be alive to whatever the questions that are being raised by the book um, that are broad and human and profound. Lastly, I do have a new, I'm, I'm working on, I think other people might be working on it as well. There's a variety of resources for adult education. Some of them are already up and running. So like uh, Agora Institute, Dallas Institute, um, Great Books Foundation. Uh, these are all places which set up uh, little communities online for people to talk about great books. And I'm also setting up a support network for people I call autodidacts uh, called the Catherine Project. So that's in process. It hasn't been uh, officially launched yet, um, but we are looking at ways to provide support for people to read and study and think um, in the midst of their own lives. 
And do you have a timeline on that yet? Any idea when we might be able to expect that? Or am I putting you on the spot? <laughs> no, no, no. So we're running a small pilot now. I'm happy to talk about it. We're running a small pilot now um, with a budget of $0, which is fun, <laughs> fun and inspiring. You know, we've, we've got about 20, 25 people involved as teachers or as students. Um, we'll get some lessons from that. We're setting up a 501c3, that legal process is in way, underway. Until we've got that, we can't, we're limited in our degree to raise funds and such to expand our options. I think there'll be a web page launching this fall. So I hope within uh, a month or two, um, we'll have a, a web page with more information, with a little admissions process, uh, with um, ways, to, ways to get involved. So yeah, keep an eye out. Uh, I, I, I will be um, promoting it in a limited way. The, the <laughs> demand has already been so large Sure. Uh, that I actually have wondered as to whether I should be advertising it, but um, but, but uh, please keep an eye out for it, and uh, at the very least, maybe we can persuade some other people to launch some similar endeavors so that we can Absolutely. start start to meet the, the the all the adults that are hungry to read out there. Uh, yeah, and for all those adults who are hungry to to read, I encourage they make sure to read Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. It's a tremendous book. Um, it's a real credit to you, uh, Zena, and I'm sure all of our listeners will enjoy that book. So thank you very much for joining me today on Madison's Notes. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Nina. Thanks so much. Well, there you have it. Zena hits on her new book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. I'll go ahead and put a link to the book in the show notes. I encourage everyone to check it out and discover those hidden pleasures for yourself. That'll do it for us today. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.